we deserve to be healed? We're in the middle of a series in the book of Matthew, and uh, we're in a section where it's an extended passage where Matthew shares what it looks like for the kingdom of Jesus to touch down in our world. And when he touches down, healing breaks out. Wrongs are set right. And as we focus over the next few weeks on supernatural healing for ourselves and for our friends, for our neighbors, and for our city, it's only natural to wonder, do we deserve it? Should we expect healing for us, or will it only come to other people, people who maybe have their lives a little bit more together? A central tenet of Christianity is grace, this idea that none of us deserve the good God showers into our life and into our world. He doesn't do good because we earn it. He does good because he is good, not because we are good. But there's always this sneaky voice in the back of my head and probably in the back of your head, too, that says, you know, because of that thing you did back then or over there, God's not going to heal for you. God's not going to work in your life. God's not going to do these things. Or because of who you are, you don't deserve to see King Jesus heal the brokenness in your life and in your world. Now, Matthew seems to assume that after last week's message, where we heard that Jesus is a willing healer, he seems to assume that we're going to wonder, is he only a willing healer for some people and not for us? Only for those people over there or those people who have everything together and not for you and me? So he uses an example of Jesus healing one of the most despised people in Israel, a career soldier in the Roman army, to remind us that the grace of Jesus knows no limits. Now, it cannot be understated how much the Jewish people hated the Romans in the first century. Historians tell us taxes were 80 or 90 percent of your income in first century Israel. How many love taxes? Not me. Nobody. But you know what? It's a whole lot less than 80 or 90%. Can you imagine that? You barely have enough to survive, and the Romans are taking 80 or 90% of your income. No wonder why people hated the Romans, right? But not only that, land that had been in your family for generations, the Romans were taking that and giving it to soldiers as they retired as payment to the soldiers. And so there was land that had been in your family for generations and generations and generations, and the Romans came in and said, yeah, that's now the soldier's land. That's his payment for working in the army. And you go, but it's mine. It's my family's. My, my grandfather tilled it. And my great-grandfather tilled it. And they said, no, if you say anything, we'll kill you. Like, they hated the Romans. And it's not only that, like, um, the religious leaders and the nobility, the people in Israel who should be standing up to power instead had gotten in bed with the Romans in order to join insurgency groups like zealots and, and swearing allegiance to a group of assassins called the Dagger Men. And they would sneak up in crowds uh, in Roman-occupied Israel, and they would slit a Roman soldier's throat, and then they would blend into the crowd and disappear. And so everyone you knew had someone who had been oppressed by the Romans or you had been oppressed or you knew somebody who was joining one of these insurgency groups to fight the Romans. After the last big rebellion in Israel, Rome crucified 6,000 Jewish men who had rebelled along the road to Jerusalem. And so every time you walked up to Jerusalem to worship, you remembered seeing 6,000 crosses along the road where your family member and your friends and your neighbors had been crucified as a statement that Rome would crush Israel and there was nothing you could do about it. So all this to say, the Jews just didn't have a strong dislike for the Romans. They hated the Romans. It wasn't like, oh, you know what? I don't care for those Romans. They hated them. 
And I think it was important to Matthew that this story be included because he worked for the Romans himself, and yet Jesus picked him to be an apostle. And he's writing this gospel, this account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension. And Jesus started his manifesto in Matthew chapter 5 by saying, the people you wouldn't expect are first in line for his kingdom. Remember, he said, blessed are the poor, the opposite of the people they thought would be blessed, like the rich and the powerful. And, G- and Matthew seems to be saying here that the healing of God is going to come to people you don't expect and even to people you don't think deserve it. Healing is going to come to us even when we don't think we deserve it. So let's look at the story together in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5 through 13. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him asking for help. The centurion is a Roman soldier. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And I say to that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. And he said to those following him, Truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subject of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. Now, Capernaum was home base for Jesus's ministry. Matthew 4.13 tells us this is where Jesus lived. Matthew 4.13 says Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum. This is kind of his central hub from which he goes out and preaches and teaches and heals. Capernaum was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee that's in the north of Israel. It was home to about 1,500 people in the first century. That includes Peter, And Matthew are both from Capernaum, and it was also home to a Roman garrison, including the centurion in this story. Now, a centurion was a Roman career soldier who led between 80 and 100 men, right? We have, what do we call 100 years? A century, same as a centurion. But they didn't always have 100 soldiers. It was somewhere between 80 to 100, but they could command up to 100 soldiers. Centurions also carried a vine staff with them, And they were the only soldiers that were allowed to beat Roman citizens. You were not allowed to strike a Roman citizen unless you were a centurion. And they could use their vine staff to beat citizens that got out of control. So they they had some unique abilities that other people weren't allowed to do. Centurions were very well-paid career soldiers. And they were often promoted to the role of centurion because they served in in battle in a brave or an exceptionally brave way. They did something reckless or courageous, like they were the first to charge through a hole in the wall, and many times they were promoted because of that. Now, Jews reading this account from Matthew would expect Jesus to do this. The centurion comes up, and they're like, we hate Romans. Jesus is going to tell this guy off. They would expect him to be like, no healing for you. No, you're a bad person. You don't get healing. Only the good people get that. No healing for Romans. The Roman oppressors should be sent away. Healing is for God's people, not Roman pagans. That's what they want. In their mind, the Messiah should be killing and defeating Romans, not exemplifying enemy love. 
in Luke's account of this passage, he seems to imagine that people will be uncomfortable with this passage, and he includes this detail. This was a good centurion. He was nice to the people, and he even built a synagogue. This is a little side note included in Luke's account, because Luke seems to realize people are going to be uncomfortable with this. Did you know you can still go to Capernaum today and see the ruins of the synagogue that the centurion built? Pretty cool. Anyways, side note. Matthew, though, doesn't give us these details. He doesn't try to soften the blow and say, well, he was a good centurion and he built synagogues. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus heals everyone, even the bad guys, too. Whenever the New Testament mentions a centurion, in fact, there are seven mentions. They never say anything bad about them. That would have been highly controversial in the first century. The normal thing for all the Jewish writers of the New Testament to do anytime they mention a centurion would be like those awful Roman centurions. Instead, they exemplify enemy love even in how they write the presentation of the gospel. So I think in the story here, though, when we come to this story, Matthew wants us to think or Matthew assumes that we're already thinking Jesus will heal for others, not for me. Because I did that thing, or I'm not worthy of his healing. And then we'll read this story and realize he, if he healed a Roman soldier, he'll also heal for you and me. He heals because he is good, not because we are good. And some scholars suggest that the healing may have been even more scandalous. Now, this involves a little bit of Greek, so just stay with me for you know, just a few minutes. I'll try not to bore you with too much Greek. But the words the centurion uses here when he says, my servant, is actually the Greek word pice. Can you say that? Pice? Pice. Yep. That's the Greek word. And it means boy. But it, it has a more intimate, uh, it has a more intimate relationship than simply soldier or servant. The other word that's used in this passage for servant is lulos. Can you say lulos? Lulos. lulos. Yep. You didn't know you'd be forced to say weird Greek words today. That means servant or slave. That's not the word he uses. That's the word that's used when Jesus is like, do you want me to come kill your servant? He says, lulos. And what the man says is, I want you to come kill my pice. It's this much more intimate relationship. He says, I have soldiers and I have servants, but that's not who I need healed right now. He wants healing for his pice. It's a uh, more intimate and familiar word than merely a servant. It can mean a young boy servant. It can also mean a son or an illegitimate son, or it can even mean a young male lover. Matthew is saying when the king comes, he's going to bring healing, and it doesn't matter who you voted for or what your race is or your thoughts on controversial issues. Jesus brings healing to all that ask. We don't know what the relationship is here, but whatever it is, Jesus brings healing. Oftentimes we like to play gatekeeper for Jesus. Uh, we point to the most controversial issues of our day, and we try to tell people who can and can't approach Jesus. The first century religious leaders tried to do that, and Jesus did this annoying thing. He would go and eat with the people that they say you shouldn't spend any time with, you shouldn't talk to, the people who had no right to come to God. Jesus would share meals with the people that we would rather avoid. And I think sometimes when we read the Gospels, we're like, Jesus ate with the sex workers and the tax collectors. Man, Jesus was punk rock, you know? He was like a rebel. That's so cool. But we have no sense of the scandal of the first century. Imagine the person that you're most uncomfortable with. Maybe it's a political person. Maybe it's a person, I don't know what it is. Whatever you imagine. Imagine Jesus eating with them. Not going in there and saying, here's everything you guys are doing wrong, but just eating with them. It kind of it irks me. 
I think about some political people, and I don't want Jesus eating with them. I think about some people who are racist or bigoted, and I don't want Jesus eating with them. That's the kind of feelings that people had as Jesus went to people who didn't deserve it and said, I bring healing to you, too. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus said, we should love our enemies so that we may be children of our Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So anytime you're feeling like, you know what, Jesus isn't going to heal me because I'm this or I did that or I'm not whatever, you're way too focused on yourself and not focused enough on the willing healer King Jesus. You're trying to draw battle lines when Jesus wants to bless across lines. When you think Jesus shouldn't heal that person because they're not whatever, they don't have this together, they're not doing this, they're doing that, Jesus wants to heal across lines. The message of Jesus is not, come to me when you get your morality right. Like, clean up your life, do everything right, then come to me and I'll accept you. No, the message of Jesus is not, come to me when you get your theology right. Like, you believe some things that are off, and that's just not, you go to seminary a couple more years and get it all together, and then you can come to me. That's not the message of Jesus. The message of Jesus is, come. Because I came, you can come to me. Your morality doesn't have to be all right. Your theology doesn't have to be all right. Come to me, and I'll change you from the inside out. Jesus wants to heal our sin. All of us have selfish, destructive, broken things inside of us. We choose things that hurt ourselves and hurt others and hurt our world. Jesus wants to heal that. He wants to heal our brokenness, the places where our lives and our personalities and our history and our story has been broken. And he wants to turn those broken pieces into part of his beautiful story. Every place Jesus comes to is better for having him there. Every life that crowns him king changes for the better because he starts a healing in us. And he wants that healing he starts in us to flow through us and out into the broken places of the world. So Jesus says, okay, you have this, uh, this boy, this pice that it needs healing. I will go to your house and heal. And notice what the centurion says. He is not worthy. He doesn't think he's worthy enough for Jesus to come and heal. It was against Jewish custom of the day for a Jew to enter a Gentile's house. The Jewish leaders in the first century would say, don't go into a Gentile house. They're unworthy. We are God's people. We're special. We're God's special people. Don't go into their house. And Jesus is here saying, I will come to your house. And he says, no, no, no. I'm not worthy. Don't do that. That was never forbidden in the Torah, but the religious leaders in his day had made it an extra role. Now, that's, there's no change there, right? Sometimes the church still today gets so busy creating commands God didn't say, they ignore the ones he did. I can't tell you how many times in churches growing up I heard, don't drink alcohol. It's against the Bible, even though it's not in the Bible. But then when it came to things like loving our enemies, they're like, we don't hate them we just strongly dislike them i'm like that's the same thing you know like he said love your enemies but we're adding all these extra rules that aren't there so jesus says i will come to your house and the centurion instead suggests that jesus just speak and heal him from a distance he says this because he understands authority now as the authority of the caesars flowed through the centurion's life and allegiance to rome So the authority of God over disease and demons and all else flows through Christ's life and his allegiance to the Father. And Jesus is amazed at this. Like he says he marvels at his faith. 
he believed that Jesus could heal with a word, not just a touch. He believed Jesus was working, even if he couldn't see him working. He believed that Jesus would heal despite who he was as a Roman soldier. He believed Jesus had the authority to change the status quo, that his life wasn't going to look like the same tomorrow because he had met and spoken with Jesus. Do we believe that? Like so often I pray and I just expect things to stay the same. So often I don't see anything happening and I'm like, well, nothing is happening. You know, like obviously God is just not hearing me. He's not doing anything. This man had faith that even when he couldn't see Jesus working, he was working. Even when he couldn't see Jesus's touch, he knew Jesus's words would heal. Do we? Jesus sums up this entire encounter by saying the people who you think would be shoe-ins in the kingdom are going to be outside, and the people who you think don't deserve to get in are going to have a place at the feast table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The people who think they deserve healing based on who they are are the very people who will miss it. And there is this very graphic image of people gnashing their teeth. You notice back here in this passage, he says, hey, these people you don't expect, like this Roman centurion, are going to be feasting with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, while others are going to be actually outside in the dark, outside looking in at the feast and saying, gnashing their teeth. So what does that mean to gnash your teeth? That's a weird, it's a weird phrase, right? Let me give you an example. Imagine I'm in college. This is a real-world example. And I'm taking an exam. And I'm a very driven person, and I like to make A's. So I filled out my whole test, and I'm going back over my answers. Because I never just filled it in and said, done. I would always double-check all my answers. And I reach a question that I had some questions about. And I was like, ooh, I picked A, but I'm not sure. So I think about it. I do some work on the side. I think about it some more. I erase A, and I fill in C instead. And I'm like, okay, it's C. And I go and turn in my report and I immediately take my backpack out in the hallway outside the door open it up pull out my book to double check it was a it wasn't c it was a I should have stuck with my first answer and I I know never change your answer that's right and I gnashed my teeth I went I knew it was right I knew it was right and I changed my answer I knew what was right and I picked the wrong thing that's gnashing your teeth anybody done that probably all of us at some point have done that Sometimes we ignore what we know is true because we know if we admit it was true, we would have to change. And Jesus says, you know that my life, my gospel, my good news of who I am is right. Come to me. Come to me. You don't want to be on the outside of the feast looking in someday and say, ah, I knew the way to go was with Jesus. Jesus is directly saying here that there are Jews People who thought they were in, they were going to be in the kingdom because of their birth, who they were, the family they were born into. They're actually going to be on the outside of the kingdom looking in while a Roman soldier dines in the kingdom because he saw Jesus for who he was while they refused to. So as we work this week to become people of peace and agents of love, as we ask Jesus to heal the broken things in us and around us and use us to bring healing into the world— what should we do with this message? How do we take this message and like apply it to our lives? What do we take out of this? Well, I want to encourage you to do three things. One, remember last week I asked you to write down something and pray for the healing. Pray for the healing of a family member. Pray for the healing of a relationship. Pray for something that needs healed in your body or in your mind or a, a, in your city or in your community or in your workplace. 
Continue to pray for Jesus to heal. Because not only is he a willing healer, he's someone who heals despite who we are, not because of who we are. He doesn't say, okay, you know, you've been making good grades in the morality category. I'll go ahead and heal for you. No, he heals because of who he is, not because of who we are. Number two, think about the objections for why you think Jesus won't heal. Are they really about Jesus or are they more about your insecurities? So often I think, well, Jesus isn't going to do this. He isn't going to show up here. And really it's a lot more to do with my insecurities than anything about Jesus. Confess those things. Admit those things to Jesus. Ask him to build your faith. And finally, I want you to think about who your enemy is. Who is the person that you're like, I feel uncomfortable when good things happen to them. If you have a hard time thinking about who your enemy is. We all have those people who maybe hurt us or betrayed us. The people who are against us, who aren't for us. The people who we think, you know what? If a bad thing happened to them, I might feel a little smirk inside of me. I may not show it, but I'd feel good about something unpleasant happening to them. Think about those people. And then pray and ask God to heal in their life. And bring healing into broken places in their life this week. Jesus said we are never more like our Father than when we love our enemies. I have had people who should have been for me, other pastors who should have been my friend, but instead they stabbed me in the back. They tried to undo the things God was doing, and I'm like, what is this? We should be the closest allies in our mission to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. And instead they saw us saw me as a competitor, and honestly, I have hard feeling. When I see them, I'm like, mm, I feel, I do not feel good inside. I have a lot of feelings about that. So take time, pray for the people who have betrayed you this week, pray for the people who have hurt you, and pray that God will bring healing into the broken places in their life. Don't pray this, pray that they have a car accident, you know, pray that they lose their job. No, that's what we want to pray, but we're not like that, right? We're like our Father in heaven, we're going to pray for their good, we're going to pray for their healing. Because Jesus heals people who don't deserve it. That's what he does in our life. And we're going to pray that he heals the people who have hurt us because we are like our Father in heaven. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for healing the centurion. Thanks for not sending him away and saying, nope, you're not in. You don't deserve it. Thank you for this reminder that none of us deserve it. But we can all be in when we humbly come to you and say, will you heal me? Will you heal my servant? Will you heal my family member? Will you heal my friend? Will you heal my city? We need you. God, forgive us for thinking that we're good enough and help us to not at the same time be so in the extreme that we think we're so bad that you won't do anything. It's not about us at all. It's about you. Thank you for being good enough when we couldn't be. Thank you for dying for us so that we might become like you. And God, I pray that we will be like you. you um, the Apostle Paul says that you died for us while we were sinners, when we were enemies of God. And so, God, I pray this week that you will give us a supernatural love to pray good for our enemies, for those who have hurt us and harmed us, disappointed us, and betrayed us. And I pray all these things like I believe Jesus Christ would. Amen.